you can open your Bibles to the book of First Peter. So over the past three weeks, the Apostle Peter has been weaving us through some difficult teachings, which some of us found to be extremely difficult teachings. And he, he's challenged us for the sake of our gospel witness. That's what he says. For the sake of our gospel witness, he's challenged us to respect authority. That, that's really countercultural, isn't it? Like, respect somebody who you don't like what they are asking you to do. Respect authority. Submit to it, actually, is what Peter said. And he called on us to respect our masters, or as I preached it, our employers, and to live in relationship with Christ at the center of all our relationships. And in Peter's context, he talked about wives and husbands and wives who have unsaved husbands. And then he talked about husbands and how a Christian household should function. Well, in today's passage, Peter is going to conclude his teaching on a Christian household, the household codes, so to speak, uh, by calling on us as a church. So he's been talking to different people within the church, and today he's actually going to call on us as the corporate church, as the body of Christ, to actually live in a very specific way, a very specific way of how we're to do community. So as we walk through our passage today, I want you to keep in mind a few things. Peter's overarching or undergirding theme or concern that we find our identity in Christ and that we not lose our witness in society. So remember, this is a group of people who are being persecuted and Peter is teaching them to rest in their identity in Christ, but to not lose their witness in a culture that doesn't want to hear what they have to say. Peter's worried about them blending in and when you blend in, you lose your witness. So let's uh, take a look at chapter 3. Starting at verse 8, Peter starts off with a word that you're probably all super happy he's about to say. Finally, finally, all of you, so that's that, that he's talking to the church, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tenderhearted and keep a humble attitude. Don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. <laughs> I love it. That is what God has called you to do, and he will grant you his blessing. For the scriptures say, now Peter's going to quote a psalm, and you could read that psalm. It's Psalm 34. He quotes it verbatim. If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, how many of us would say, yeah, that, that'd be pretty awesome. I'd like to enjoy life and I'd like to see many happy days. Nobody in this room. First service had a few uh, that would like to be happy. I guess some of us just would prefer to be miserable. If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, now scripture's gonna tell us how that happens and it's not what we think. Keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. Turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. 
The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. Father, I pray that as we weave our way through this passage this morning, that your spirit would begin to speak to us as individuals, as well as us as the church. That we would hear what it is that your spirit wants to say to us this morning. How the church conducts themselves matters in their ability to witness. So how we actually interact with one another creates either the possibility to be a witness to a broken world or to not be a witness to that broken world. And this seems to be a concern that Peter has with these churches in Asia Minor. Remember, he's concerned that they might begin to blend into culture or that they might begin to fight back in ways that also causes them to lose their witness. And so he takes this posture of submitting, but yet living countercultural through love. Now, this is really super interesting to me. Peter calls on this persecuted church to be a good gospel witness. Not by how they preach the gospel, not by how they sing songs. He doesn't, notice he doesn't mention any of our structural church things. What he mentions is how they live it within their own community. In the second century AD, there's a writer by the name of Tertullian. Has anybody here ever heard of Tertullian? We did have a few people in our first service that had. Tertullian was uh, a church historian. He was someone who wrote about the church and wrote about Roman culture in the second century AD. So it's really old writings, but it's what we call extra biblical writings, things that are writing about things that are happening at that time. So this is outside of scripture, and Tertullian, this church historian, wrote something really interesting about the early church and the Roman government, this dynamic that was happening. He writes that the Roman government was so concerned, listen to this, they were so concerned with the growth and the effect of the Christian church on their society that they began to send spies into their church services to actually see what was going on. Now, now, first of all, I want you to take a step back and just think about that for a second. The church was affecting society so much that the Roman emperor noticed and is sending in spies because he's concerned that they're growing too popular, that they have too much effect on the culture around them. Now, Tertullian actually claims in this writing to have spoken to one of these Roman spies. And this is what he captured as the spy's experience of him coming into a church service in the second century AD. He said, they're a strange people. They meet in an empty room to worship. They have no image that they direct their worship 
toward. Now, you've got to understand, this is a pagan, a Roman pagan person coming into, somebody that worships the gods, coming into a Christian service. And he says that they they have no image that they direct their worship to. They speak of one named Jesus who is absent, yet they seem to be expecting him at any moment. It's a strange sight to see. But one thing that was obvious, so this is his observation. This is someone who's never been in a church before. They know nothing about the Christian religion. And here's their main observation. They sure seem to love this Jesus. And they sure seem to love each other. Let me, let me ask you this. If someone who had no church background at all, no understanding of what the church is or why it exists, and they came to our church as a spy, what would their perspective be? Would they respond like this spy? I don't understand much about how they do things, but they sure love Jesus and love one another. Let's take it to the next step. Let's say that this spy actually got to spend time within our church community. That they attend some of our programs. They meet with others at the coffee shop. They're a fly on the wall at your small group meeting. Or your conversations with your spouse. Would their feedback be that they sure seem to love Jesus and love each other? You see, this is is Peter's concern that the church would hold its witness. He wants people to love Jesus and each other, and he wants that love to be very obvious to the outside world. The problem is that this church that Peter is addressing, struggling in a culture that is anti-Christian, that they must be struggling with this. You ever ever noticed in Scripture, he wouldn't be talking about it if they weren't struggling with it. Often things that are absent in Scripture is because it wasn't something that was an issue. It's just an interpretive insight. What would their feedback be? You see, if we were actually truly honest, I think that we would have to admit that we struggle with showing our love for Jesus and for each other as well. John Stott, a famous Christian theologian and pastor uh, out of England, so you're going to sense some English kind of language here, uh, but he's a very famous Christian theologian and pastor. Listen to what he says about the current church. So this isn't old writings, this is current writing now. He says, the problem we experience whenever we think about the church concerns the tension between the ideal, what the church, the ideal of the church would be, and the reality of who the church actually is. The ideal is beautiful. The church is the chosen and beloved people of God, his own special treasure, the covenant community to whom he's committed himself forever, engaged in, I said contentious last service, 
continuous worship, and I almost did it again, continuous worship of who? God. Continuous worship of God. Not programs, not structures, not ways of doing things, but a continuous worship of God. And in compassionate outreach to the world, a haven of love and peace, and pilgrim people headed for the eternal city. So that is the ideal, beautiful picture of the church. That's the way scripture describes it. But, but in reality, we who claim to be the church are often a motley rabble of rather scruffy individuals, half educated and half saved, uninspired in our worship, constantly bickering with each other, concerned more for our maintenance than our mission, struggling and stumbling along the road, needing constant rebuke and exhortation, which is readily available from both Old Testament prophets and New Testament apostles. The reality, folks, is if a spy came and spent some time with us, I'm not sure that they would report back just how obvious it is that we love Jesus and love each other. Instead, they might wonder why we came to church at all. They might wonder why so many talk behind other people's backs. Or why they, some seem to be excluded and others seem to be important. They might wonder why the church talks about being something that it rarely lives. Like John Stott said, they might see more concern for personal opinions and our maintenance, our personal maintenance, than our mission. Now, folks, just to throw a quick thing in, our mission is actually extremely clear, and theologians do not argue about the mission of the church. The mission of the church is not to develop programs that better our social lives or entertain us. It's not to have the right style of music being played. It's not even to cater for your every whim. It's to be a gospel witness to the world. That's what the church is called to be as a community, a gospel witness to the world. This is why Peter writes to these churches, why what he writes to these churches is still so important for us today. There are ways that the church can be attractive, and there are ways that it can be a repellent. And it has nothing to do with our style or our programs. It has everything to do with who we are as people. Peter is concerned that we live what makes us attractive. And it's not what many people think. This is what he calls us to do in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you should be of one mind. Sympathize with each other. Love each other as brothers and sisters. Be tender-hearted and keep a humble attitude. This is the posture that Peter says is what is attractive to those who know nothing about Christ. To be of one mind, to be sympathetic to each other, to offer brotherly love and be tender-hearted and humble. Now, being of one mind, or some translations say like-minded, is not talking about agreeing with each other. 
Many think that the being like-minded means that we agree on everything, that unity only happens when we all agree. This is not biblical unity, it's uniformity, and the scriptures never teach us about that. Unity doesn't mean that we all agree. To be like-minded or of one mind actually has to do with the key theme of what Peter's been talking about this entire time. To be of one mind, you have to know where to find your identity. Our like-mindedness comes from being rooted in Christ. When we're all rooting our identity in Jesus, when Jesus is the bar that that we set for who we are as people, then we become like-minded. Our being of one mind has to do with who we believe Jesus to be. And we unify around this, and we all think with Jesus at the center of our thoughts. When this becomes a church's reality, then we begin to become more sympathetic naturally, and it points us to what the scriptures say of brotherly and sisterly love. How many people have a brother or a sister? Now, how many, we won't tell your brother or sister, unless they're sitting here, then you're omitted from this, but how many sometimes find their brother or sister to be a pain in the butt? This is exactly the kind of love that scripture is pointing us to, an unconditional love. I love my brother, but he drives me nuts sometimes. But I don't go around slandering his name because I love him. I'm willing to put up with him because he's my brother. The Apostle Paul, he talks about this a little bit in Ephesians chapter 4, verse 2. He says, always be humble and gentle. Like not just occasionally, right? Always be humble and gentle. Be patient with each other. Now listen to what he says. Making allowance for each other's faults because of your love. Some versions say bearing with one another. I love that. Bearing with one another. So it's like agonizing thing that you have to bear with. That's brotherly and sisterly love. Amen. This is a a posture of making allowance for each other's faults. And it's a posture that moves us then into a posture of humility. When we realize that none of us are perfect. Now, these are the key pieces to how Peter describes how a Christ-centered community should actually posture itself. Listen to what he says as he goes on. He gets really detailed here. He says, don't repay evil for evil. Don't retaliate with insults when people insult you. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. Think about that. This is what God has called you to do. And he will, in turn, grant you a blessing. It's our natural human condition as sinners to want to repay evil with evil. 
If someone offends you, you need to get them back. And usually, in our culture, the way that we do that is we talk behind their backs passive-aggressively. Or we do something in retaliation. But Peter says, don't, don't do that. Instead, pay them back with a blessing. Think of how countercultural that is. And think about how much witness it gives. Folks, let me tell you, there's, there's nothing better than responding with positivity toward negativity. When somebody approaches you with negativity and you, can, you jump onto their battleship and you join them with the negativity, where does that take us? I was part of a program, establishing a program in the Hamilton area where it's a police officer and a mental health worker that work together. And uh, as we were pioneering this program, the whole concept was around police are trained to like take you down, not talk you down, but take you down. And so this bright idea that a bunch of us had one day, we're like, you know, maybe there's another way. And being an Anabaptist, a peacemaker, I'm like, yeah, there, there could be another way. What if we developed a way to talk to somebody to calm them down so the police officer didn't need to use force? Now, this is specifically usually in the realm of a mental health crisis. And we were able to successfully often de-escalate a situation. And you know how we did all of our training? It was about using positivity in the moment. The minute you became negative, it would escalate. But when you used positivity, it would calm the situation down. Positivity always combats negativity. And that's what Peter is calling us to. It changes the entire posture of the conversation. In other words, kill people with kindness. It's a way more effective way of getting them back. Plus, we need to address something here. The whole posture of offense is something that being in Christ actually deals with. If you trust in Jesus, if that's where your identity is found, not much will offend you because you're no longer living your life for you. Offense is driven by selfishness when you are others-centered you tend to be less offended. To explain things further, Peter is going to quote Psalm 34, verses 12 to 16. You can literally stay in 1 Peter or move over to the psalm. He says this, for the scriptures say, so he's going to quote the Old Testament, the psalm, if you want to enjoy life and see many happy days. He doesn't say like earn a ton of money. He doesn't say like, gain a whole bunch of status in this world. He doesn't say become famous and well-known. What does he say? If you want to enjoy life and see many happy days, keep your tongue from speaking evil and your lips from telling lies. You see, most of us want happiness, and Peter says happiness comes from not speaking evil against others and being honest. Isn't that ironic? 
to quote song lyrics, don't you think? Think about this. When you're sitting around complaining about someone, does it bring you happiness? Does your mood improve when you're complaining? How about when you're lying? Does keeping secrets and telling lies bring you happiness or does it bring you stress? Do you know that it's actually clinically proven that venting, right? We, we say, you know, I just needed to vent my frustrations. That venting makes a person worse, not better. The entire act of venting, this has been clinically studied by psychologists, the entire act of venting actually physiologically raises a person's blood pressure and stress level. It doesn't relieve the situation. As, as clinicians, as, as counselors, we're trained to divert somebody away from venting. Because what relieves stress is actually being honest about how you feel. So as counselor, we'll like give you a piece of paper with a whole bunch of faces on it, and we'll ask you to name your feeling. How do you feel in this moment? Name it. Put a name to it, right? Some of you are smiling, so I know you've been in therapy. It's good. We all need therapy, trust me. What relieves stress is being honest about how you feel, so naming your feeling and then asking yourself, what part can you play in the solution? Venting, complaining, you know, what that does is it creates a bunch of people meeting in a coffee shop that are like-minded and lose their witness. What relieves stress is being honest about how you feel, then asking yourself what part you can play in the solution. Now listen to what Peter says. He says to turn away from evil and do good. Search for peace and work to maintain it. Our posture as a community must be rooted in making peace. And the only way to begin the process of making peace is to turn away from evil. This isn't rocket science, right? Turn away from evil, that's the beginning of the process of being able to make peace. So if we're caught up in a cycle of complaining, slandering, lying, and only caring about what we want and think being right, then it's difficult to make peace with others. I would actually say nearly impossible. Often it means we just gather with others who are caught up in the same cycle. Peter says something really interesting here. He says to search for peace. And I love this because it means that peace is something that we actually have to work for. It's, not, it's something active that, that we have to be seeking always. It's not something that naturally happens if we avoid something long enough. Because that's what we'll often do, right? We'll kind of passive-aggressively just pretend like this offense or this thing never really actually happened. And if we just pretend long enough, then it just kind of peacefully goes away. But that doesn't, that doesn't work. It's not something that naturally happens. Peace is something that we have to actively work toward with a posture of humility. Now, the final verse in Peter's passage, he makes a shift here in the text. 
And he now talks about what actually motivates us to live the way that Peter is calling us to as the church. Listen to what he says in verse 12. He said, The eyes of the Lord watch over those who do right, and his ears are open to their prayers. But the Lord turns his face against those who do evil. In other words, God is watching, always watching, and always taking account. Scott McKnight, a theologian that I've quoted in the past, he wrote the NIV application commentary on the book of 1 Peter. And listen to what he says about this verse. He says, The fundamental point that Peter makes is that God is omniscient and omnipresent. How many people just got super excited about those words? This is what it means. He sees all, knows all, and is always present. So God is omniscient and omnipresent. That's the fancy theological words to say that he sees all, he knows all, and he is always present. People must not think that they can, uh, that they can get by with evil behavior. For God is watching and evaluating. His eyes are on the righteous. Moreover, he hears their prayers. That is, God is on their side, protecting and shielding them. At the same time, the Lord's face is turned against those who are wicked. Once again, we draw back to 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 12. So one thing you got to understand when you're studying a book of the Bible is that it will interpret itself often. And other areas of the Bible from other authors will also interpret what Peter says Paul helps you with, and vice versa. So he refers back. Remember this theme. Those who live righteously before God will, in the end, be vindicated by God on a great day of glory. But those who live sinfully and oppressively will receive condemnation from God Almighty on the same day of his glory. The verse that he's quoting here, chapter 2, verse 12, you'll remember this when I preached it. Be careful to live properly among your unbelieving neighbors. Then, even if they accuse you of doing wrong, they will see your honorable behavior and they will give honor to God when he judges the world. The church today needs to ask itself, how would a spy see us? Would they see a love for Jesus and for each other? Or would they see the same vindictive, hypocritical behavior that they already see in the unbelieving world? Would a spy see our worship as genuine and centered around the one that we worship, or would they see the same thing as an unbelieving world, a rock concert, or a bunch of bored people waiting for it to be over because Swiss Chalet has great chicken? Would a spy hear us gossiping and slandering, or would they hear us talk respectfully of another brother or sister in Christ? You see, to Peter, how we behave with each other either opens the door to be a witness or closes the door because we are not any different than the culture around us we just claim to be. So ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart today because it's not the words of a preacher that convict you. It's the work of the Spirit in you 
that creates conviction. So go to that spirit. Ask the Holy Spirit to work in your heart today. This is something we as Christians should be doing all the time. And ask him to give you correction. Imagine that, going to God and saying, I'm a sinner, I need you, and I need your spirit to correct who I am. So rather than saying, Lord, make my day amazing, help me to make a lot of money today, help me to become famous, help me, help me, help me, help me, help me. Instead, we take this posture that Peter's presenting to us of submitting. And so ask him to give correction where it's needed and ask him to guide your heart toward Jesus. And then moving forward, ask yourself, how would my words be heard by others? Do they represent Jesus and who he is, or would my words drive a wedge between others? See, when we live the posture of peacemaking and love, Peter says that God's ears are open to our prayers. Do you understand how huge of a statement theologically that actually is? Because what he's saying there, folks, is that sometimes his ears are closed to your prayer. And that there's a specific posture of peacemaking and love that opens the ears of God to our prayers. It's my prayer that we would be a community that loves God and loves others. And that this love would be obvious to everyone around us. When I was reading this and studying this, like, there's a reason I'm sitting down, right? Like, we're all part of this. We're all equally convicted in this. We all do this in sin. And so reread Peter's instructions. Make that your devotion this week. Just spend time reading this over and over and over and ask the Spirit, what are you saying to me through Peter? And ask yourself, how can you become part of the solution? Rather than pointing out the church's faults, find your part in being a witness for the sake of the gospel. Because that's actually what scripture's concerned about, is that we be a witness to the world. The worship team could join me up here. I want to leave you today with these words from Jesus. So these are Jesus' words represented in John's gospel. They're very simple words. John 13, verse 35 your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Notice he didn't say, your amazing programs. Notice he didn't say, your wonderful social structure. He says it's your love for one another that will prove to the world that you are my disciples. It's obvious, is it obvious to the world that we are his disciples?